0: Spiked is free. We have no paywall. You don't have to subscribe to read our articles or listen to our podcasts. We want as many people as possible to have access to our content. And so we are determined to keep Spiked free. And we're only able to do that thanks to the generosity of our readers and our listeners. Your donations mean we can carry on doing what we're doing and provide an essential alternative voice on the big issues of the day. This is particularly important during the COVID crisis, in which Spiked has provided the space for lockdown sceptics, dissenting experts and others to say things that have become unsayable elsewhere. So thank you to everyone who donates to Spiked. If you don't yet donate, but you would like to, please consider doing so today. One-off donations are always hugely appreciated, but even better are regular monthly donations. Even £5 a month, less than the cost of a copy of The Guardian and a cappuccino, can make a huge difference to our work. So, to help keep Spiked free and thriving, go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Now, on with the show.
1: Experts have been screwing things up a lot lately. You can write a whole book on elite failure, you know, the the failure of these people, of this class of people. Because it's in your face and it happens all the time. The Iraq War, the subprime bubble, and then the, the collapse of Wall Street and the bailouts. These were like the smartest people in the room that did this. And then the smartest people in Washington went and bailed them out and made sure that none of their buddies on Wall Street got prosecuted. This was not ordinary people that did that. These failures Pile
0: up. Hello, and welcome to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems, and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Thomas Frank. Thomas is an American historian, political analyst, and columnist. He has been a columnist for the Wall Street Journal and Harper's Magazine, and he was also a co-founder of Baffler Magazine. He is the author of numerous books, including What's the Matter with Kansas? How Conservatives Won the Heart of America, Listen Liberal or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People?, And his latest book, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. In the UK, it is published under the title People Without Power, The War on Populism and the Fight for Democracy. I talked to Thomas about his new book in which he mounts a brilliant defense of populism and traces how the forces of anti-populism over the past 120 years have always depicted democracy as dangerous and the masses as ignorant. Thomas, I want to start off with a, a broad question about populism. Because uh, as you have discussed at length, populism has become a swear word of modern times. It, it's, it's a code word for evil or fascistic or bad or stupid or ignorant. It's become a, a, a lazy way of describing a certain section of the population. And you are one of very few people who challenges that understanding of the word populism. So, can you give our our listeners a, a brief description of how you see the word populist and what you think it means?
1: Yeah, and I can also tell you why why I'm the guy who's uh, who's challenging <laughs> it. So, in the American sense of the word, what populism means is a mass movement of working class people challenging the economic system in a democratic direction. It's a transracial, specifically a transracial movement of working class people. Now, it, it doesn't mean anti-intellectual. It doesn't mean stupid. And it doesn't mean all those the other things that you mentioned. It doesn't mean proto-fascist. The people who invented the word were uh, people here in the United States. They were actually in my home state of Kansas. So there's there's a little bit of regional pride there. And what they <laughs> what they meant by this when they when they made up the word is they were describing supporters of a brand new political party that was started in the 1890s and that was very, very similar to the British Labour Party. Although it was the, the, the American version was much more about farmers than about workers. The emphasis in this country was on farmers in those days. Farmers were a majority of the population, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason it, it rubs me the wrong way when i hear the word populism used in the way that you described is because when, when i was younger i spent a lot of i i was a graduate student i studied history i even i eventually got a phd uh, but <laughs> that's a story that's a story for another occasion but when i went to graduate school i was fascinated by populism that was going to be my subject american populism and i studied it and i wrote about it and, and then i gave up on it but not before i had read like all of the literature in the field, you know, how, how, how you do when you're, when you're studying a subject. And I'd read all the, the books about it and all the sort of the, the, the controversies. I was very familiar with the different things that historians debated about. And what was shocking to me is just, I mean, you know, a couple of, oh, well, I guess it was several years ago, around the time of the Brexit debate. And I started seeing the word populist used in this way, not just in European media, but in American media. And uh it, it was the, the European usage of the term was starting to bleed over into like the New York Times and the Washington Post. And they were just using it as though everybody knew what the word populist meant was, as you described, proto-fascist, you know, r- blundering, stupid, racist, anti-intellectual. And this made me really angry. (laughs) <laughs> let's just put it that way. It mm. really pissed me off. And so I decided to, as is my want, I decided to, that I would, I would read up on this and figure out how the, the meaning of the word changed. And that, that was the genesis of the book. My first reaction was just to be like, no, it isn't. That's not right. Yeah. You know, you're completely wrong. How can you say that? But then, you know, a slightly more sophisticated take, you know, I, I don't own the patent to words. Words change all the time. So let's figure out how this word, Changed, But it didn't just change. You understand it flipped 180 degrees. Mm. It flipped from a positive term about uh, a movement that was kind of brave for its stance on, you know, reaching out to people from different racial backgrounds in the 1890s. This was unheard of at the time. And, you know, votes for women, all these of it was very they were very ahead of their time, the populists were. So it flipped from being that to being the exact opposite. And that's that's really strange how the hell did that happen? And so that became my subject. And along the way, I discovered that anti-populism, hating populism, and insisting on defining it in the way you describe, that there's a long tradition of this. And it comes up again and again and again. Once you open this can of worms, you just find all sorts of interesting things. (laughs) It is truly fascinating. Well, let's dig down into that can of worms. And let's talk a little
0: bit about the movement that you are referring to there. Because to listeners outside of America, they might not know a great deal about it. So one of the things in your book, which I think is utterly devastating for the anti-populist movement, is your potted history of the People's Party. And in fact, it's the thread that runs through your book in many ways, in terms of the people who created the term populism, what they meant by it, and how they subsequently came to inspire all sorts of other people, including Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s, which I want to ask you about specifically later on. So, tell us a little bit about the People's Party in the 1890s, where they came from, what they represented, and
1: what they considered themselves as, as going up against. Okay, that's a re- that's a great question. And by the way, it's not just people in in England or in Europe who don't know the original meaning of the word. That's Americans don't know it either. They are taught some of this stuff in in high school, but You know how high school history is. Nobody takes it seriously and they figure, they figure it's just propaganda and they ignore it. And then they get exposed to it later in life and they're like, that's really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, that's, that's how history is. The populist party, its official name was the people's party, but apparently nobody called it that. It was, it was referred to almost exclusively as the populist party. And it was a, as I said before, a movement of farmers and workers. It began as a group called the Farmers Alliance. It was like a farmers union. This was, you know, a very hard time for farmers in the 1890s. The uh, farm prices were going down. People were losing their farms. And, and they, they said, well, you know, if we all get together and educate ourselves about what our problem is, we can come up with ways of, of overcoming adversity. And they, the, the movement, it caught on like, like something that catches on really, really well. And <laughs> millions and millions of people signed up. It was, it was a huge mass movement, this farmers movement. And they discovered right away that you know, they couldn't make the changes that they wanted by themselves, that they had to go into politics. And then they discovered that the political system of the 1890s was so incredibly corrupt. Because the concentration of wealth, et cetera, it was very easy to bribe officials. This is a, an important chapter in American life when corruption was just running wild. Okay. The gilded age, we call it. And they discovered that, you know, they couldn't get anywhere with that. So they had to go into politics themselves and they did, and they formed a third party. And this was the last really big third party movement in American history. They did run people for president, but that was an afterthought. They But they did elect governors and senators and mayors and members of Congress and, you know, all up and down the slate. And they had different degrees of success in different places. So in my home state of Kansas, which is where they they first rolled out this plan to go into politics, they succeeded. It was a single-party state. The Republicans ruled Kansas then as they do today, and the populists beat them, you know, a complete surprise, just gave them an incredible wailing in the election of 1890, and then it spread all over the place, and you had these, you know, third parties all over America. They had... You know, success in some places, not in others. I should say the place where they were most successful was the Great Plains, but you also had them in places like California. I mean, there were populist members of Congress from California and you had them in the South. The South is a very interesting case because there the political rulers were the, what's called the Bourbon Democrats. These were uh, racist, extremely conservative members of the Democratic Party and uh, they ruled the South with this doctrine called White solidarity. The idea was that your racial self-interest was more important than anything else. And the populist party said, you know, made this amazing sort of declaration. They said, no, actually, at the time, blacks could still vote in most places in the South. And they said, no, white farmers, their interest is much closer to that of black farmers. Than it is to those of the you know the wealthy white ruling class, I mean farmers. These were what's called tenant farmers in America, sharecroppers basically. And again, they they initially had great success, but the racist Southern Democrats just came down on them like a like a like a ton of lead and crushed them. Anyhow, the movement died out. We can talk about their further adventures and what happened to them, but it died out by about the eighteen ninety seven or so. It was basically gone, and then it it slowly it disappeared from American life. But the things that they were demanding, just to give you a, a taste of what they were after, they wanted to take America off the gold standard, which was, of course, the, the, you know, keystone of the global financial system at the time. And they're like, you know, we need to do away with that. And they wanted government to nationalize railroads. They wanted these farm programs so that farmers didn't continually get ripped off by bankers. They wanted votes for women. They wanted all sorts of anti-corruption measures. You know, so popular election of the U.S. Senate back in those days you wouldn't know this but the US senators were chosen by state legislatures who are it turns out incredibly easy to bribe <laughs> <laughs> and so they wanted to they wanted to uh, do away with that system and and a number of other things like that and the the funny thing is that in the long run they died out after you know 5 or 6 years but in the long run they got their way on nearly every issue in fact on every issue that i just mentioned they all of these things eventually became law in the United States. And they and in fact, they look like like perfectly reasonable demands right now. (laughs) But this is the critical point for the book. So when populism was coming up, nobody thought these were reasonable demands. People thought this was absolutely crazy. You know, the, the sort of uh, orthodox thinkers of the age that, you know, economists and business tycoons, and the people who owned America looked at this movement coming up from Kansas and said, you know, these people are insane. This is a movement of, you know, lower class people who, who don't understand anything. There's something mentally wrong with them. There's, a, you know, they they have a psychological ailment. They used sort of every theory available to the 19th century mind to try to explain these people away. And that's the origins of the way the word is used in Europe, is is in this anti-populist campaign where they uh, where they tried to crush pop. Well, they did crush populism, and that's where their usage of the word populism as a synonym for like you know mental illness, anti-intellectualism, all that stuff. That's where it comes from.
0: And I think your your description in the book of the People's Party or the Populist Party, as it was widely known, is just so incredibly useful in terms of countering so much of the nonsense that we hear about populism today. And in fact, I think the UK, Britain, went through a a similar process in the 1840s and the 1850s with the Chartist movement, because the Chartist movement, the movement of working-class men for the right to vote, they were often denounced as victims of demagoguery, uneducated. Yes,
1: it's exactly the same, yes.
0: It's the same thing, ill-suited to political life, And so there was a kind of anti-populist drive against those guys too, which I think is very interesting.
1: That is exactly right. and But it goes way back. They denounced Tom Paine in the same way. They denounced the French Revolution in the same way. And in America, after the American Revolution, they sat down to write a constitution. The people that wrote the constitution were afraid of democracy, and they thought the word meant mob rule. What's interesting is that you see when the word gets flipped, when the word populism gets flipped... This is like the mi- 1950s is when it when it fully becomes commonplace to use the word populism in the, in the way that you d- originally described. You couldn't say democracy means mob rule anymore. Everybody thought democracy mm-hmm. was a good thing after World War II. You know, we we're all, everybody believed that democracy by that point. So they needed a word to stand in for this old conception of democracy as this dangerous uprising of the lower orders. And the word they settled on was populism and yeah and it 's massively unfair to the populists and to the people who followed in their in their footsteps and populism, if you understand the tradition in the way that I described it, politicians and uh, movements that are in the populist tradition actually have a, have a great record in the united states they 've done wonderful things following on from that, one of the things that I thought really struck
0: me reading your book is that the more I read about these original populists from the 1890s in the u s the more I thought, wow, I really agree with these guys on so many things. So the right of women to vote, that's a given. Racial equality, a hundred percent. The fact that they were economic radicals, I'm down with that too. And then you quote from the American nonconformist who yes. said that that, <laughs> that populism is is essentially about the needs and interests and welfare of the people. And I, I was nodding along constantly. I found myself thinking, God, I wish I'd been around in the 1890s. That sounds like a really fruitful moment in American politics. One thing I wanted to ask you was about the extent to which you think populism is a corrective. Because, I mean, in the 1890s, it was it could be argued that it was a corrective against, as you describe, the corruption, the extraordinary corruption that existed in American politics and American capitalism. Yeah, and then we can come on in a moment to the corruption and and other problems that were corrected by populist movements in the 20th century and the 21st century. But to what extent do you think the 1890s moment was an ext- was just an important corrective, which actually rebalanced American political life in a way that has benefited. All sorts of people
1: I think that's that 's accurate to say, so that it was a third party. There used to be a tradition of third parties in America. Our system is different than yours. You are pretty much punished if you 're not in one of the two main parties, and so to even try to start a third party is a really risky venture, but nevertheless it it was tried and succeeded at different times in the nineteenth century and If you go back and look at when it happened and what, how it succeeded, it was whenever the two main parties agreed on the big issue of the day and refused to listen to voices from outside. Does this sound familiar to you, by the way? When, <laughs> whenever that happened, that was a ripe situation for a third party. So it was a, a form of accountability or, as you say, a corrective. And the uh, the most famous third party is, of course, our Republican Party today, which started up because the two main parties at the time, the Democrats and the Whigs, were basically refusing to debate the issue of slavery. And the Republicans said, you know, you know, there's this really big issue. We should be be doing something about it. And they they rose up and they and the Whig Party died. And populism was the other big one from that time. And the issue in those days was industrialization. You know, what do we do about industrialization? Do we just let it rip? You know, laissez faire, that was a term in the old days, you know, let it go. Don't do anything. No government help for these people. And the two parties definitely agreed on that. They agreed on the gold standard. They agreed on, on laissez faire. And th- some of the anti-populist stuff from that period is it's just sh- so shockingly callous to human suffering. You know, these farmers are losing everything and, you know, they're, they're in rags, right? I mean, they look like people out of the, you know, French Revolution or something. And the sort of leading economic minds of the day said, well, you know, uh, what should the government do to help these people? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> they, owe, they owe these people zero. It was just, it was a, a, a no-brainer for them. And so, but populism just by force of numbers. Makes their voice heard. And in this case, rather than killing one of the two major parties, one of the two major parties swerved and absorbed them. And this was in this case, the Democratic Party. And it all happened very suddenly in the year 1896. The Democrats took this big step to the left and embraced a whole bunch of the well, one big populist issue. And the populist got on board. And this is actually more uh, if you are doing just a really mainstream, straight up history of the Democratic Party up until 1896, it was not a party of the left. That would be a mistake. It was very clearly not that. And that's one of the things that when it embraced populism, it became the more left of the two parties in our system. And it has remained so ever since. But that's what happened to populism. Now, what's funny is third party movements, there has not been a national successful third party movement since then. People have tried but nobody's ever been able to pull it off since then for a lot of different reasons. One is that the two major parties have contrived to make a lot of the techniques that the populists used illegal. Not for any good reason, just because they don't want it to happen again. They, they, this is, you know, <laughs> they would prefer not to be challenged. <laughs> so they've, they've done that. And you don't see third parties in America anymore. But-
0: Let's lead on to the next five minutes of blabbing, which is exactly what we want. And I want to fast forward. You've just said that so many of the demands and the aims of the People's Party, the Populist Party, ended up being taken for granted and institutionalised. So I want to take us forward to America in the 1930s and the 1940s, which is another key focus in your book, and, and particularly the shift from Hoover to FDR and the way in which, in many ways, FDR represented populism in the White House. Yes. And there's one quote in particular that you have from FDR in 1940, I think, which really stood out when I was reading this. He said always the heart and the soul of our country will be the heart and the soul of the common man, the men and women who never have ceased to believe in democracy, who have never ceased to love their families, their homes, and their country. The thing that really struck me about that, firstly, I think it's very apt to describe that as a populist sentiment, a sentiment that emphasises the decency and importance of ordinary people. But the other thing that struck me is that if you were to say those words today, you would be roundly denounced as I don't know, fascistic, racist, sexist, patriarchal, all those other things.
1: But, but wait, only by deduction. Those are, those are noble sentiments. That <laughs> yeah. is, that's who we are. Very Come noble, on. very noble Th- that's, sentiments. That's, that's democracy. Like statements like that to Americans, that used to be, that's almost r- religious. That's almost like the, a sacred text you know that's who we are the funny thing is that we've gone so far from that you know that so democrats still say things like that not as directly i mean roosevelt had a way with words it it's, it's brief and it's to the point and it's not bullshit it's succinct and roosevelt said stuff like that all the time and it's not just a whole bunch of political BS because it actually signified something really important, which was, you know, what one of the things that people began to understand during the 1930s was that prior to that, American government had been operated for the benefit of a small number of people who happened to be the owners of the country, owners of the great corporations, you know, the shareholders, the wealthy. And he said, we're going to operate the government in the interests of ordinary people. And that might sound like a cliche today, but it was absolutely revolutionary. And you look at the the culture of the nineteen thirties, you know, it's it's the great decade of the common man. When you see this kind of stuff in art and movies and literature, it's all over the place in the nineteen thirties. It goes right up into World War II. By the way, whenever you're talking to people about populism, they use it to mean, you know, proto-fascism. I American culture, World War II, the way we understood World War II was in this total populist sensibility. And I have a bunch of quotes on that. I just found some more the other day. Bill Malden. You remember this guy, the cartoonist? You, you wouldn't because you're not in America, but he was an American cartoonist who was with the troops in Italy and in France. And he's beloved, right? Every American of that period knows who he is and loves this guy. And the whole idea of his cartoons was the average infantryman. That's who was mm. winning the war, not the brass hats, you know, not the, uh, not the guys on the general staff. It was all about the ordinary American at war. And we had that sensibility right up until, you know, into the 1950s when it sort of disappeared. But th- that was powerful. That's who we are. That's the great period of, Of achievement for the American left, such as it is. You know, that's when we got the welfare state, regulated business, got labor unions, all that stuff happened thanks to this way of thinking. Absolutely. And one thing I I think
0: contemporary anti-populists, I think probably the thing that they would bulk at most in, in your book is your description of FDR in the White House as representing populism in the White House and your very thorough description of the anti-populist drive against the New Deal, against FDR, against this, what the capitalist class in particular saw as this bizarre notion that resources should be redistributed to people who had yeah. no
1: food. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, people who were unemployed. So,
0: so I, I wanted to ask you specifically about that because- you know, this is a broader point too, which we can develop as well. But there is this notion at the moment that populism is a necessarily right wing phenomenon. Of course, there are left wing populist outliers in Spain and Greece and other parts of the world. But there is this overarching notion that populism tends to be. A right-wing phenomenon, a bad phenomenon, a kind of fascistic phenomenon. And I think what you demonstrate very well in relation to the FDR situation in particular, is that this was a moment at which the left assumed a particular importance in American public life. And the anti-populist drive came from... Uh, People with business interests, people who had capitalist power, people who had a a vested interest in preserving the exploitative nature of society as it had existed prior to that.
1: That is exactly right. I would even go one step further that the anti populist resistance to Roosevelt was itself fascist or fascistic or close to fascist. You know, people like William Randolph Hearst, who hated Roosevelt and, uh, you know, attacked him constantly. Hearst also ran newspaper columns by Goering you know the, the Nazi the, uh, Hitler's right-hand man you know these were these were not good people but they're what I loved about writing about the anti-populism by the way this is stuff that is that historians are not interested in it's not that nobody's mm. ever written about it. it's just you know they don't really care so they don't like the, the people who beat populism down in the 1890s are not interesting to American historians they have this romantic attachment to populism itself but not to the they they aren't interested in the people who killed it And the same with Roosevelt. So the culture of the thirties is very well known and you get a, you get an understanding of it every time you turn on the TV and watch a Frank Capra movie or something. I don't know if they watch those in the UK or not, but you know, here that stuff is on TV all the time and you know, and so we're always reminded of the, of the, the era of the common man, but not everybody felt that way in the 1930s. There was, and not just in America, but all around the world, there was at the same time as you had this great flowering, of populist culture in the United States. You had all over the world these important thinkers and movements who were saying, you know, democracy is done for. The idea of letting ordinary people have a say is, is stupid. I'm thinking of revolt of the masses by Ortega E. Gassett and and various others. And here in America, this manifested as a movement led by a, a business group called, a. well, there were several different ones, but they came together in 1936, the business leaders of America. And by the way, they, they, they said this openly, a guy called E.F. Hutton, he was a financier, wrote a magazine article, that was much commented on in 1935 to his fellow business leaders, to his fellow executives, his fellow tycoons. And he said the, the headline, the title of the article was, Let's Gang Up. Yes, gang up right. on Roosevelt. Let's, let's all get together and let's, <laughs> and let's crush this guy. And the, uh, the DuPont family, they own a very important arms manufacturers here in America, bankrolled an organization called the American Liberty League. Which is the first of the great right wing front groups? Now historians know that this happened, but they don't dig into it. They don't like go back and read what the American Liberty League was actually saying. And so I went. I went and did this, and oh my god, it's <laughs> the most <laughs> astonishing stuff. It's exactly like the opposition to the populists in the 1890s. It's basically uh, once again the, the lower orders are out of control. The lower orders have no rightful claim on we the you know the true rulers of America. The reason we rule America is because we are the ones who, you know, God meant to rule America. We understand how it works. We are the fit. We are the intelligent. And again, there's a lot of eugenics mixed into this campaign against Roosevelt. A lot of basically a fascism uh, mixed into it. These people well, they would quote fascist theorists all the time. I, I did not know that until I went and did the research myself that they would they would talk about, you know, that the reason working class people were on the bottom and why they had to stay on the bottom is because, you know, they had bad genes. Yeah, they had bad DNA. You know, there was something wrong with their their mental construction. You know, it, it's the it's and also they were crazy. That's they they rolled out Carl Jung <laughs> to attack Franklin Roosevelt's <laughs> mental disorder. They always do. It's always the same bunch of tricks. What astonishes me when I go back and read these different attacks, first on populism and then on Roosevelt, is how much racism was mixed into these things. I mean, especially with the attacks on Roosevelt, because Roosevelt was also reaching out to the black community in the northern cities and was very successful at doing that. And th- this is when the black vote in America, by and large, goes from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. And the people attacking him are are using all kinds of really, you know, creepy racist theory against him. And uh, this is all forgotten. By the way, th- uh, an important factor here that that we haven't mentioned is the The ganging up nature of it, Okay, In both of these situations, both in the 1890s and in the 1930s, anti-populism represents a gathering of the tribes of the people who own this country. What would we say? A gathering of the elite tribes. So in both cases, you have uh, captains of industry coming together with the news media. The, The newspapers of this country despised Roosevelt, coming together with the Republican Party, coming together with the professional elite. In the nineteen thirties, it's all these lawyers, the head of the bar association, economists. They would sign mass letters denouncing FDR, you know, as the economists still like to do to this day. And the, the great thing is they lost. They got their ass yes. they got their ass handed to them. <laughs> and, and uh Roosevelt gave them the biggest, you know, electoral thumping that's ever been seen yeah. in this yeah. country.
0: Absolutely. In a moment, I want to uh, explore with you one of the things I think is very important, which is the shift from anti-populism being a racist phenomenon or containing aspects of racism towards what it is today, which is a supposedly anti-racist phenomenon. I yes. think that's quite an important shift in the nature of anti-populism. But but I think just to, to keep the kind of chronological line, I think your description of the 1930s is incredibly important because in in many ways it's it's the decade of the common man and the common woman and the common person but it it is also the decade in which there is pushback against that phenomenon from the elites and from the business elites and also the cultural elites who become more important in the fifties and sixties, but they're there in the nineteen thirties too. And John Kerry is a British writer and he wrote a book called The Intellectuals and the Masses, which really traces the intellectual, supposedly intellectual, reaction against mass society from the 1890s through to the 1930s. And in fact, that was one of the first books, I read it when I was very young, that was one of the first books that turned me on to the problems of anti-populism and anti-democracy. And he touches upon some of the authors and ideas that you develop in detail in your book. But one of the things I wanted to specifically ask you about the 1930s Because the 1930s, in my view, is kind of a precursor to the 1960s in some ways, even though it's not necessarily understood like that in historical terms, in the sense that there were two things going on, which is firstly, there was a pushback by populist movements who were very, very democratically successful. And then there was the reaction by the self-interested elites, and there was a reaction against this uprising by self-interested capitalists and protectors of cultural correctness and everything else. To what extent do you think the conflicts of the 1930s prior to the Second World War, which obviously complicates everything, to what extent do you think the conflicts of the 1930s have informed the tensions and the conflicts that have emerged in the 20th century and the 21st century since then?
1: Well, in my mind, the 30s, that's the period where everything begins. And for a lot of people who have like similar political views to me, that's the great period. That's the heroic age. I'll give you an example from a few weeks ago my daughter and i went mountain climbing in rocky mountain national park and the national parks had been declared long before the 1930s but in the 30s roosevelt set up a group called the civilian conservation corps to have you know unemployed city kids go out and work in the national parks and they built all the trails and highways in these national parks. And every time you go to one, you look at these highways that they would build up into the alpine reaches of the mountains. And you, you just, you can't believe that someone did this. they clearly yeah. built by hand, you know, with yeah. beautiful stonework. And every time I see this, that's, uh, it, it reminds me that that's the beginning of, of the middle-class society. When you had all of these federal programs begin, you know, all of these unemployment programs, you have social security begins, and you have unions basically forcing corporations to pay people better. It's the beginning of the middle-class society. And if you're like me, I grew up in the 60s and 70s and 80s. That middle-class society, that's the world that you were born into. And so this is where it begins. And the 30s are foundational for me in that respect. Now, all that's gone now. All of the assumptions of the middle-class society have deteriorated and blown away. And it's hard to even describe it to people anymore, that we once took all these things for granted and you could get good healthcare in America. And America was essentially a social democracy, not in name. We would never use words like that in America, but we basically were that up until the 1980s. The 30s are the beginning of that and the 80s are the end. (laughs) Right, right. I actually want to propel
0: us forward slightly because I I think um, your description of the 1930s is very apt in terms of the tensions that were at play and the influence that those, the ripple effect that those tensions had on the rest of political life for the next, I guess, eighteen, ninety 90 years. But I, I wanted to, just to keep with the chronological thread, which I know is a narrow way to understand these things. But just to keep with the chronological thread, I wanted to actually talk about the 1950s for a okay. second, because one of the things that I found really interesting reading your book is your discussion of McCarthyism. And I had never thought about McCarthyism in this way before. And that's why I thought it was an incredibly useful phenomenon, which is that you describe the McCarthyite period in the 1950s as a moment at which the intellectual classes start to understand the threat to their existence or the threat to their moral authority and the the threat to their expertise as something that is generated by the ignorance of the masses, which is exploited by demagogues like Joe McCarthy. And I thought that was a really useful way to understand the McCarthy period, because I've always struggled to understand how you go from what is presented to us as the liberal protest against the McCarthyite culture how that then bleeds into the 1960s and all the other kind of countercultural phenomenon that followed. Oh man. But I just thought it was a useful way to describe a very important shift that takes place, which is that this misunderstanding in some ways of mccarthyism, not as an elite clampdown on supposedly problematic dangerous ideas, but the misunderstanding of it as ordinary people infecting political life with their ignorance.
1: I would say deliberate misunderstanding. But I like how you put that. You've, you've read the book more thoroughly than anybody else I've, I've, <laughs> I've encountered <laughs> since I finished <laughs> writing it. And first of all, thanks for reading it. And I'm impressed by that. Do British listeners know what McCarthyism was? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we're
0: very familiar with McCarthyism. Yeah, it's a yeah.
1: period of, of red scares and specifically of wrongful accusation where false accusation just runs wild in american culture and you can get somebody fired or in trouble with the slightest hint that they are a communist and there is this fear of communism as like a you know that it was everywhere it's not just the, it's not a fear of the soviet union per se it's a fear that communism is here among us And, uh, we have to root it out and we don't know where it is. And, and, you know, some people are suspicious and it, it takes a nasty turn against intellectuals, specifically university professors, uh, people who write movies for Hollywood, you know, that kind of thing, as everyone knows. And the intellectuals reacted to this. And this is a, a, you know, really fascinating thing. The intellectuals react to this by deciding that what McCarthyism is, is exactly as you just put it. It's a mass movement of the diluted masses. Which, by the way, it was not. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe McCarthy was a, you know, U.S. Senator. I mean, he was. There were a lot of delusions behind him and a lot of fears and a lot of hysteria behind him, but he wasn't a particularly, you know, a great leader of working class movements. Yeah. He was not yeah. that. He was a he was a traditional Republican from a Republican area who had Republican backers. And yes, he was able to whip up hysteria, but it wasn't the same thing as like a union going on strike or something. It's a completely an utterly different thing. Nevertheless, the intellectuals of the 1950s decided that the two were in fact the same. And they decided that what McCarthy represented was – and this is where the word populism gets flipped. They decided that McCarthy was a species of populist. And it's a very interesting move. And it comes out of a – this sort of generation of intellectuals in the 1950s. They called themselves the consensus intellectuals. Actually, I don't know if they called themselves that or not, but that's what they're called. And I, I have a bunch of their books here on the shelf. Here's one. He's got a picture of McCarthy on the cover, you know, and they're, they're absolutely terrified by and fascinated by McCarthy and decided that he represented the problem of mass democracy, which they called populism. And the guy who got them going was a historian named Richard Hofstadter, who was the greatest American historian of that period. Probably the most popular American historian who's ever practiced the craft. And wrote a book in 1955 called The Age of Reform. And it is the, the classic expression of the 1950s sensibility. And he completely, in it, you know, it was very popular, won the Pulitzer Prize, bestseller, and has been described as the most influential work of American history ever written. Although it's hard to find anybody that's read it today. But nevertheless, in this book, he decided to do a, you know, a new interpretation of populism. And he looked back at this movement in the 1890s and said, look, these guys were uh, – they had a lot of conspiracy theories. They, a lot of them were anti-Semites. They were people on their way down and they had all of these psychological pathologies that we associate with people on their way down. And so he redefined populism as proto-fascism. Now – Right away, and this is in order to understand McCarthyism, okay, he wants to see where McCarthyism is coming from. And so he's like, it comes from that. It comes from movements like that. Now – Just so you know, this interpretation took off like a rocket and everybody buys it. And you've got all of these different intellectuals you know, chipping in on this theme and saying, yes, that is exactly right, Richard Hofstadter. The rest of them don't even know what populism is, this movement in the 1890s. They don't know what it is. Hofstadter is a historian and a great one, but even his research on populism was quite poor. And the other historians in a very short amount of time had just absolutely demolished his understanding of populism. They wrote, they would write whole books destroying individual chapters. I keep reaching back to my bookshelf to like, (laughs) to to pull the books off the shelf. And yes, here we go. Like, here's a guy, (laughs) the intellectuals and McCarthy. Here's a guy that just, this is a whole book dedicated to destroying the Hofstadter thesis, right? But it's highbrow sociology. It's difficult to read it. And it never had anywhere near the kind of, of reach that Hofstadter's book had had. I mean, Hofstadter got the Pulitzer Prize. He's, you know, it's it's widely respected. And over the next 10 years, as I said, so his understanding of populism, the movement in the 1890s is completely destroyed. But his use of the word populist catches on. And that's the second part of the story. Why does that work? If it's completely wrong, why does it catch on? And this is the thing. Hofstadter wasn't just writing about the past, Obviously, he's writing about the present and he's writing a manifesto for his generation of intellectuals, for these consensus scholars. And this is the 50s. This is the great period where intellectuals are coming into power in American life. And by intellectuals, I I mean professionals, people with MBAs. You know, people with PhDs, the university system is growing enormously. Uh, you have, you know, these geniuses running the Pentagon, you know, Robert McNamara, (laughs) you know, you have all these, uh, you know, MBAs running the corporations. And this is the great era of managerialism and Hofstadter is writing a manifesto for managerialism. The great idea of the consensus intellectuals is that you don't want mass movements of working class people. That's not how you make reform. That's not how you get anything good. You want to avoid that because that just leads to things like McCarthy. What you want are us, the intellectuals, sitting around a table in Washington DC and hammering out, you know, the solutions among ourselves. As this guy, Edward Shills puts it, what you want is an affinity among elites. You want affinity. Among, they, you want them to be friends. You want the elites to get along with each other. You want them to be pals and you don't want to bother them. You want to leave them alone. You don't want to call them names. Don't call them communists. You know, don't, don't do all that mm. stuff. And you do not want movements of ordinary working class people because that leads right to fascism. By the way, his example shills in this book, where he's talking, you know, he he hates populism. His counterexample is the UK. We have to become <laughs> the US has to become more like the UK. We have to turn away from the populist tradition and become more like you people, where people respect elites. You yes. know in the UK I don't know where he got that shit but uh, that's that's what he that's what he <laughs> Well he,
0: he would be incredibly disappointed by the UK at the moment <laughs> in relation to the vote for Brexit. I, oh, but I, I mean this is why I think your passages on McCarthyism and what you've just said about McCarthyism is actually a really useful bridge between what I understand to be an economically interested anti-populism
1: it always is it always is that's that's so that's the point that's what you've, you've put your finger on that all of these groups are when when they denounce populism, they're doing it out of some form of really more or less obvious self interest. We are the good guys. Populists are the bad guys. So it's railroad tycoons in the 1890s, you know, uh, and newspaper owners and the Republican party, whatever. And it's the same bunch, you know, it's uh, lawyers and economists in the 1930s. And again, the, you know, tycoons, the DuPont family. And then in the 1950s, Intellectuals take over this old critique of populism and make it their own and and this is the twist these are liberals uh, yeah. by by which I mean you know people <laughs> of the left and by the way, a hofstadter really steals a lot of his attack on populism from the 1890s, from those newspapers and cartoons and stuff. And he never acknowledges it. It's not plagiarism or anything like that, but his ideas are you can easily find them in the attacks on populism of the 1890s. And he never acknowledged it because, of course, that would be embarrassing that you're swiping ideas from these really reprehensible figures. (laughs) But this is the other point. This is where the, the meaning of the word as proto-fascism, this is where it takes off. And Hofstadter's book has huge international ramifications. As I say, the American historians basically demolish it in a very short amount of time. But that doesn't matter. Europeans don't know that that ever happened. They just see this word and they're like, aha, there's a handy new word, you know, to describe our hatred and revulsion towards democracy, (laughs) towards these mass movements of ordinary people. And that's where it begins. And the thing is that whenever, and I don't want to be unfair here because a lot of people use the word in good faith. You know, they they don't like Marine Le Pen. And this is the word that they've been told describes Marine Le Pen, or they don't like Jer Bolsonaro, or they don't like... Whatever his name is in Germany or what's his face in, you know, in Holland. And, and they want to oppose these people and they want an ism to do it. And, and that's what it is. Okay. Fair enough. I, I wish them luck in opposing the far right. But the thing is that in a lot of this critique of populism, and there's all of these books and academic conferences and articles being produced nowadays using the word in this way, the echoes of Hofstadter and the echoes of the 1890s are there. This is a myth. Hofstadter and his friends, the consensus intellectuals built a myth where it is intellectuals and professionals need to be in charge and ordinary people are anti-intellectual and dangerously, you know, damaged and you cannot let them have a say. And those echoes are still there. And often when people use the word populism in this way, that entire myth is coming along with it. It's there. Yeah. It's present in the argument. Absolutely. And I think you've nailed it there when you said that's the twist in terms of
0: the twist from a kind of self-interested economic capitalist anti-populism towards what I think happens, what you argue happens from the 1950s onwards, and which I think has become more pronounced over the past five to ten years, which is the kind of cultural anti-populism, academic anti-populism, supposedly intellectual anti-populism.
1: Just to finish that thought, it's always the expression of a a ruling class or a would-be ruling class. And and that is especially true here in America just in the last uh, 20 years, where the professional class you know has become so much more powerful and has shifted so dramatically into the democratic party uh, and yes. and this is their word now to describe the folly of trumpism or whatever you want to you know whatever you want to call it
0: just stick in with the chronological thing just for 5 more minutes Let's move on from the 1890s, the 1930s, the 1950s, and let's just look at the 1960s. Because one of the parts of your book that I actually found very touching is the part on Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, and something I didn't know prior to reading your book, which is that in one of Martin Luther King's most important speeches, which I think was in 1965, he referenced the Populist Party. He referenced the People's Party and he referenced the possibility that was opened up by those people in the 1890s, which was the possibility of a transracial collectivity in a sense that we had interests that bound us together, which had nothing to do with race, but were more about class and the economy and power and so on. And what you describe incredibly well in that part of the book about the 60s and about Martin Luther King and his referencing back to that populist moment, you describe very well how the civil rights movement was in some ways representative of that populist yearning for the influence of the people against the elites, and how the anti-populist moment at that time came from Jim Crow, the imposition of racist laws, the clampdown of authorities and and powers within the South, who could not countenance the possibility of people coming together to fight against officialdom. So, could you just speak a little bit about how you see the civil rights movement as fitting into your thesis?
1: Well, you ju- you <laughs> you just did it. I mean, the, the, the Martin Luther King speech is uh, this is a great moment and. So in the sixties, you have the, the overlapping definitions. You know, we, Hofstadter's definition was out there, but it, it hadn't achieved widespread acceptance yet. And the old definition was still there. And in King's, one of his great moments, he's just led the march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. And this is the high point of the civil rights movement. They're about to pass the voting rights act in Washington DC and end the long, you know, blacks had been disenfranchised after populism in the 1890s. And they were about to end that, you know, that long, ugly chapter of American life was, was coming to a close. And he, he steps up to give this, this speech at this incredibly triumphant moment and yeah and he does a shout out to populism and what's really uh, amazing about it, and you can watch it on youtube the, the the whole speech is is easy to look up he gets it clinically correct he he actually gets the history of it right and i was uh, astonished by that when i saw it that you know he he does not give the hofstadter version he gives the actual the true <laughs> the true version of the history and then he goes on one of his great sort of oratorical flights where he says, you know, how the South destroyed populism. And it was by the imposition of Jim Crow and by taking the vote away from black people. And he said, you know, they gave the white man Jim Crow to break this movement. How does he put it? He says, like, when his empty stomach cried out for the, you know, the the food that he couldn't provide, these are poor farmers he's talking about, he ate Jim Crow. And it's a, he calls it a psychological bird that told him no matter how, you know, how bad off he was, at least he was better than black people. And he absolutely nails it. It's one of those those great moments. But, yeah, he gives this shout out to populism as the the brief, you know, very, very, very brief moment when white farmers and black farmers briefly worked together or tried to work together and clearly with the idea that this can be recaptured. And all of these people who heard the speech took that message away from it and went home and and tried to work on things like that. Now, then 1965 is also the beginning of the Vietnam War. So immediately, you know, the left shifts away from the civil rights movement and from Dr. King and towards opposing the Vietnam War. But there were very populist elements to the civil rights movement. My favorite was a group called SNCC, which is usually pronounced SNCC, which stood for Student nonviolent coordinating committee and it was led by John Lewis at one point the congressman who just died you you read about these people and it's so awesome they would go into these uh, you know cities and towns in the south and organize people to vote you know because they legally had the right to vote but the southern establishment wouldn't let them register and they would go and and press their case but the idea was not to have leaders not to have, you know, strong, charismatic leaders. It was to go into the, into these cities and towns and get the ordinary people involved and get them to, to come up with leaders on their own to build a movement. And this was incredibly important and very, very successful. And people at the time, yes, called it populist and said, wow, this is a lot like this movement in the 1890s. There was a lot of that. Anyhow, long story short, it all comes apart. The Vietnam War, we start fighting with each other and by the end of that decade the irony of ironies i think the most ironic moment in this book is that within 5 years after dr king's speech in montgomery alabama you know his arch enemy the man who had sent the state troopers to club the civil rights protesters on the bridge at selma was this guy george wallace who was the governor of alabama who also had national ambitions kind of a you know a, a classic southern demagogue you know a racist but who presented himself as a man of the people this kind of thing by the end of that decade, Wallace, who was by that time running for president as a third-party candidate, the media in America decided that Wa- that the word for Wallace was populist. Right, and <laughs> they started right, using right. this word not to describe <laughs> King and his allies, but to describe the guy that was like beating them up. <laughs> his arch enemy it's just absolutely berserk you, you can't you know you can't make these things up no one would believe <laughs> you <laughs> but yeah that's Brilliant. that's the word so the word flips and then you yes. know it
0: goes on from there that's actually a, a really useful lead into to my next question which is just to zoom us ridiculously fast towards the current moment because What you describe in your book, which I think is incredibly important, is the persistence of anti-populism. And I have thought for a long time, well, I say a long time, I mean really four years, I thought for the past four years that anti-populism is a far greater threat to democracy than populism. And we're constantly told populism is the great threat to yeah, democracy. Right. Authoritarian populism, the stupid people, the ignorant, uneducated, anti-expertise masses, they are the real threat to democracy. Yep. And it's been pretty clear to me as someone who has been in Brexit Britain for the past few years, writing about Brexit Britain, that the opposite is the case and that it's the anti-populists, the people who want to overturn the largest democratic vote in British history. Or who want to overturn the vote for Trump in various different ways, or who are uh, variously describing voters as low information, uneducated, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> ill ill suited to political life, and so the, th- the, the the key term here, the key word here, is deplorables. Deplorables, the deplorables, right? So we're all
1: deplorables, and well, I'm not. I voted for her. I voted for Hillary. So- <laughs> I'm not. <laughs>
0: You're a pro-Hillary
1: deplorable. (laughs) But I
0: think one of the distinctive things about the current moment, which I think is so fascinating in relation to your history in your book, your history of anti-populism essentially, is that so many of of the contemporary anti-populists, the people who hate Brexit, who think Trump is Hitler, and who think the masses are as ignorant as they have always been – What's interesting is that they would not see themselves as being like the capitalists of the 1890s and the 1930s. Right. They would not see themselves as being like the racists, the Jim Crow racists of the 1950s. Yeah. But what is incredibly important is even though they don't see themselves as being aligned with those people, they share something very important in common with them. They
1: are the ruling class. Which is a view.
0: They are the ruling class and they are asserting, or rather, they're attempting to defend their authority against what they see as the a revolt of the lower orders, the uneducated masses, the stupid people. So you would draw an explicit line, even though you recognize, of course, that anti-populism changes over time. Yeah. You would draw an explicit line between the anti-populist reaction of the 1890s through to the anti-populist reaction of the 20s. Yes, I would,
1: uh, with some caveats. I don't think Trump is a populist. I think he's a demagogue, and I think he's a a fraud. So we have a we have a tradition in America also of of demagogues and frauds. You know, this is yes. the two things both exist, you know, and uh, all my life, the demagoguery and the fraudulence has been getting worse. I think of, you know, Reagan did a very good populist act. Bill Clinton did a very good populist act. All these guys are phonies. Yeah. <laughs> George W. Bush, for God's sakes, did this. You know, uh, you know the, the the soft Texas twang. Oh my God! And it's just and Newt Gingrich did a good. The the Tea Party movement did a good populist act, but it was in fact it was it was like developed in a lab or something. It was so evil. I'm sorry. It, we could talk about that some of the time. These are all my particular views on things, but the anti populism is still there, and it poisons in my view it poisons any attempt to really build a a proper opposition to trump and trumpism reagan and reaganism all of these things there is no corresponding you know well okay i'm getting i'm getting ahead of myself here because you asked a really straightforward question and the answer is yes the answer is that the people who despise and denounce populism are as self-interested as they have always been and they do represent a ruling class they're not the ruling class because in america there's more than one elite there's a sort of uh, elite of the billionaires and then there's the elite of the professional class and this is no it's not something to brush off or to dismiss it's real i was just reading a book last night i couldn't sleep and i was i was up reading this book and the you know the the, the wall street firms only choose as employees, graduates of five universities, mm. you know, and you can guess which ones they are. Silicon Valley, very, very similar. And you've effectively created a caste in this country that is defined by where they went to school and how well they did in school. And for them, America is a wonderland. These people have left the rest of us behind that old sort of middle-class society that we were talking about earlier is, is in ruins, but these people live in a, uh, you know, a, utopia they are so wealthy compared to the rest of us everything works in their lives you know they are the elite or an elite and they are increasingly identified with the democratic party i shouldn't say increasingly it's done the switch the old the the switch is done the democratic party is the party of these managerial white collar professional class elites yeah, And everywhere you go in these very wealthy suburbs in America that used to be Republican, there's everybody's flipping over to the Democratic Party. The, the one I grew up in, in, in Kansas, I wrote about it. And what's the matter with Kansas? Famously right wing Republican suburb. Democrats now, they're all over the place. It is very slowly but surely becoming Democratic. This is happening everywhere you look in upper class America. And they use the word populism to describe what they despise. I mean, the self-interest of it. Let me just say something about that. The book, The People Know, it starts with a long sort of drum roll of these articles of intellectuals denouncing populism and sort of academic elites denouncing populism. And one of the things that you immediately notice when you read these articles where they say, you know, this is terrible. The people don't believe in the elites anymore. This is awful. They don't aren't following (laughs) the advice of experts. They've stopped believing in experts. One of the things that they always leave out is that, You know, experts have been screwing things up a Absolutely. lot lately. <laughs> you, know? you can write a whole book on elite failure, you know, the, the failure of these people, of this class of people, because it, it's just like, it's in your face and it happens all the time. And they done this whole anti-populist literature without ever acknowledging that. Yeah. The Iraq war, the, the you know, the the subprime bubble and then the, the collapse of wall street and the bailouts. These were like the, the smartest people in the room that did this. And then the smartest people in Washington went and bailed them out and made sure that none of their buddies on Wall Street got prosecuted. These are the people that, the opioid crisis. This was not ordinary people that did that. These are people writing prescriptions that did that. Or, or my favorite example of elite failure is the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016, which is run by the most highly paid and smartest and highly educated political consultants in America. You know, and it's massively better funded than the Trump campaign. Like a lot of, you know, it's, it is again, a a gathering of the elite tribes, the Hillary Clinton campaign. And they're, they're going up against a guy, Donald Trump, who's the most hated candidate in American history. (laughs) And his campaign is being run, run by Steve Bannon. (laughs) Have you seen the, Steve Bannon's in big trouble right now, but, (laughs) but his campaign is being run by a guy who has never run a political campaign before, let alone a presidential campaign. And they lose to this guy. The smartest (laughs) political consultants in America lose to this guy. It's like a chess grandmaster getting, you know, beaten by a guy on his, you know, junior high school chess team, you know? It's like, it's that bad. It's absolutely absolutely crushing. These failures pile up. And it's not like there's no continuity between them. There's no themes that unite them. There are. So I wrote, my last book was about this. Listen, liberal. All of these elite failures. People are absolutely justified in mistrusting yes. elites. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, do you remember during the Brexit? I don't know how I would have voted on Brexit because I, I don't live in your country and it's none of my business. But I do remember at some point during it, the IMF issued a warning to the, to the British people telling them, don't you dare vote for this. I'm, I'm sorry. If the IMF told me to do something, you know, goddamn well, I'd do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, it's funny you should say that because the Brexit moment in the UK is actually very, very similar to a lot of the stuff that you describe in your book. And what was extraordinary about the Brexit moment in the run-up to the referendum in 2016 is precisely that every single supposedly expert institution on the planet was effectively on their knees, begging the British people to vote remain rather than leave. And it had the utterly predictable effect of of making people say, well, you know, we've seen experts get things wrong. We've seen experts make mistakes. They predicted things that haven't happened. They don't have our interests at heart. They tend to have their own interests at heart. So it was motored by a lot of the similar things that you're talking about here. But wait,
1: wait, I want to interrupt you there. In the, to go back, there's this hilarious moment in 1936 after the, uh, the the gathering of the elite tribes. They've come together. They've ganged up on Roosevelt, and they've lost. They've lost. You know, in this stunning way, overwhelmingly. But the newspapers of America at the time were regarded as particularly powerful. They had come together against Roosevelt in a spectacular fashion. Uh, it hit him with everything they had and they lost. And so after the dust had settled, these people said, were like, what the hell went wrong? You know, <laughs> what, what happened? Mm. <laughs> and one of the, the conclusions that a guy drew, uh, I forget which, which person was writing about it at the time, said that Roosevelt did better in cities where, so back then, American cities would often have more than one newspaper. Roosevelt did his best in cities where there was not a single newspaper on his side. And what this indicated was that it was the very fact of elite unanimity that turned people away. And and it's Brilliant. like, oh, there is a lesson for our time that we just Brilliant. cannot learn.
0: And, you know, one of the other things that really struck me about your book, it, it's a very small thing, but it made me laugh, which is that in the 1930s, someone published a book Of predictions by experts that didn't come true. And the book was called Oh Yeah. And I just thought that was just so perfect. And you could literally do the same thing today. Uh,
1: I tried during the financial crisis. Uh, 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 He he sent me, I think he sent me a copy of it, but this this book was as as massive a bestseller as it was possible to be in like 1932. You know, I've got it in the other room. I can't. Like pull it off my shelf. But that's all it is. It's newspaper headlines. And then then with the the actual facts printed right next to it, oh my God, it's devastating.
0: I have one more final question for you, which is whether things will ever change. Because when I was reading your book, I was thinking about the fact that anti-masses sentiment has existed for such a long time. And I was thinking right back to the English Civil War in the 1640s when you know, the radical leveller movement, which was the most pro-democratic movement, when they got a bit too big for their boots, Oliver Cromwell said, they are trying to whip up the rude multitude against elite sentimentality. And that's Cromwell. That's Cromwell. Right. Said that. That's Cromwell, right? And he was pretty radical in, in his own sense. And then if you go forward to John Wilkes in the 1700s. John Wilkes was a great warrior for press freedom and the pushback against John Wilkes is, well, you couldn't possibly give people all the information because they won't know what to do with it. They won't know how to compute it. And then, of course, if you go through to the Chartist movement in the UK and the Suffragette movement and all the things you describe in your book in relation to the US in the 1890s and the 1930s, the argument for the past 300 or 400 years strikes me as as having been pretty similar which is that there is an elite caste of society who are well educated who are aristocrats or bureaucrats or intellectuals or academics and they know what's best for society and then there are ordinary people whose best hope is representative democracy because that's quite measured and often quite tempered But anything which is more direct, any process through which ordinary people assert something a bit more demanding or a bit more direct or or argue for a transformation of the system is always denounced as mass stupidity, herd stupidity, ignorance, and so on. Can you give our listeners any sense of optimism that this anti-populist prejudice, which has existed in different ways for a long period of time, that it can be countered, that it could be transformed, and that we might actually get to a situation where ordinary people are properly folded into the decision making processes of life. Oh my
1: God. Wouldn't that be something? So I, <laughs> I'm actually not optimistic about that. And, I, and this is where, this is where I, I sort of break with populism. Populist tradition is really optimistic. So you look at a bearer of it like Bernie Sanders, who in my mind is very clearly within the populist tradition and what it takes for that guy to get up every day and go out there and just get punished. I don't have that. I'm not like him in that way. Or you look at the populists in the 1890s or you look at it, the labor movement, You know what it takes to go – I mean actually get beat up and shot at by police, or the civil rights guys uh, in the 60s. That takes a kind of optimism that I just – I simply do not have. You know, there was a guy, one of the sort of great heroes of of the book, his name was Lawrence Goodwin. He was a historian who wrote about populism, but he didn't just write about populism. He was also had been a civil rights activist in the 60s. And then after he wrote about populism, he became a professor at Duke University or something like that. And he, he wrote uh, academic articles about what it would take to build a mass movement of ordinary people. And long story short, you know, a movement like populism or like civil rights or like the labor movement in the 30s, what would it take? And long story short, it's extremely difficult. It is extraordinarily hard. And that's why these movements are very, very rare. And you look at Bernie Sanders trying to build his and, and, you know, all the opposition that he's up against. And it's, it's, it's extremely, extremely difficult. One of the things that he said you have to do in order to build a movement like this is practice. What he called ideological patience. Be non judgmental. And the reason is that you're working with ordinary people. And these are people who did not go to university by definition. You know, 90% of them didn't. Uh, They don't have graduate degrees. They don't know the jargon. They don't know what they're supposed to say. And you can't just pull a language police on them and crack the whip and expect them to get back into line. That's not how you build a mass movement. And the thing is that that attitude. Is so forgotten. Larry Goodwin's ideological patience. There's, I don't know if anybody that wants to practice that today. You look on Twitter, it's, it's the war of all against all. And we're in what I call a utopia of scolding, where it's as though people think if they can, you know, scold and blacklist and cancel and shake their finger at everybody else, that they will win some kind of cosmic competition. You know, and everybody else will get canceled off the island and they'll be left as the winners. I, You know, it doesn't make any sense to me because it's not how you build a movement. It's not it's not how you do anything. It's it's except for feel self-righteous. And this is the eternal stumbling block for people that want to be, you know, have movements for economic democracy or movements for democracy, period, is that they are constantly caught up in purity tests and purging one another judging one another, being holier than thou, and it happens all the time. And we are in such a moment now. And I I mean we just finished off the one guy who a couple months ago, Bernie Sanders again, who might have represented a way out of this. And I don't see where it goes from here. I've been watching the Democratic Convention and they don't get it. They still don't get it after still, all yeah. these years. I mean they yeah, Joe Biden's a nice guy. Everybody loves Joe Biden. Everybody that's ever met him and by the way I'm here in Washington, DC and I I think I'm the only guy in town that hasn't met him. You know, everybody's (laughs) met this guy and everybody loves him. And and maybe that's going to be enough to beat Donald Trump. But they have no understanding of the broader problems that are of their own making. They don't understand it. They don't see what they've done wrong and they're not interested in finding out. And it's just like, no, I'm not hopeful about this situation. And so I'm really sorry to leave you on that note, Brendan, (laughs) but, you know. That's the way it is. Yeah. It is. I'm really, really, really sorry. And I want people to buy my book and I want to be optimistic and give people some hope. Okay, let's just say it this way. The book ends with a slightly more hopeful, you know, on a slightly more hopeful note. Oh, wait, I can be hopeful. I can be hopeful. All my life, we have been in this country in this race to imprison people. You know, cracking down on on minor offenses, the drug war, et cetera, et cetera, three strikes laws. We just throw people in prison for for decades for tiny little offenses. And it's crazy. And it's been going on all my life. And there's not a goddamn thing you can do about it. And in my for my money, this is one of our great sins against against humanity that we have done this. And both Democrats and Republicans participated in this. And incidentally, Joe Biden is one of the guys who was most enthusiastic about this campaign to imprison a huge part of our population. Well, look what's happening out in the streets right now where it's finally the tide has turned against this stuff. And it's turned against police brutality. And I am so excited that we're finally going in the other direction. Now, uh, it, it, you know, look, the guy we just nominated for the Democratic candidate <laughs> <laughs> is one of the architects of this. And the woman who's his VP is also one of the enforcers of this. But nevertheless, the momentum is finally on the side of right and justice. You know, and that's—I have to be happy about that, and I am happy about that. So there's that.
0: Well, I found your book incredibly optimistic and very inspiring, Thomas Frank. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure.